Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our sermon podcast is available most places that you can find podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to always get the next podcast. Most people want to live well. They want to be treated well, and they want to treat others well. But it seems like it's getting harder to know if we're doing right by our neighbors. It seems like more and more people are telling us how to love our neighbors. It seems like there are more and more divisions between people than ever before. Today I want to take a few minutes and look at a simple story that Jesus tells us about who our neighbor is. In this story we find it is a simple truth, and yet it is a powerful truth. It's more important to be a neighbor than to know who your neighbor is. And when we declare that I am your neighbor, it takes all the guesswork over whether or not a person that you encounter is your neighbor and is indeed needing of your help. Jesus is asking us to be the ones to make the first move. So we are to lead the way with mercy, with kindness, with sacrifice. So please listen to this story, perhaps a familiar story, the story of a good Samaritan, the good Samaritan. Listen to the story and listen for the relationships. Listen for the sacrifice. Listen for the awe and wonder of mercy and compassion poured out. Listen for the actions of a neighbor. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And he answered, Love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. It is tempting to read this story and say, Okay, everybody is my neighbor, and so I I can love my neighbors by helping those who are in need. And this is true, but that's the easy way out of the story. I want to take you, hopefully, maybe a little bit deeper into the story than you've thought about it before today. I imagine that we have a habit of reading this story with modern eyes, and our modern society is concerned with affirming every person and affirming their truth, 
There are buzzwords in our culture like validation and affirmation. And while it's always good to treat people as equally treasured in the eyes of God, the story of the Good Samaritan goes much deeper than most of us are ready to follow. This parable is asking us to be sacrificial, to do what is right for those who hate us. Let's look at the culture and history behind the story of the Good Samaritan, and I think you'll begin to see what I'm getting at. Our story begins with an expert in the law, testing Jesus. Now, an expert of the law is a lawyer, a specialist in the law. He's not a specialist in Roman law, but he's a specialist in Jewish law. Specifically, what's meant here is he's a specialist in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. They call them the five books of Moses. These are the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. On this, the law of the Jewish people. This was their law. It was, everything was built around this. And this expert in the law uh, has all this knowledge, he understands the law, and he is testing Jesus. And yeah, testing's important, but testing needs to be done in the right situation, like school, like in forms of training, or to verify authenticity. And it's possible that this teacher of the law, this expert of the law, is trying to verify the authenticity of Jesus. But I suspect he does what so many do in the Gospels. He's more likely trying to trip up or trap Jesus. He's had plenty of evidence to see who Jesus is. And now he's testing him. He's trying to trip him up. And so the expert in the law asks Jesus a question, not to gain information. He already has the answer. But to see what Jesus would produce. Beware of when you test people. Are you really trying to gain information? Are you trying to see what they produce? It can be dangerous to test people when we shouldn't. So the teacher of the law, he's testing Jesus, and he says, or he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns that question back at the expert in the law. And this is when we find out that he's testing Jesus, because he's already got an answer, he's sure, but he doesn't take long to think about it. He just says, well, the answer is to love your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind. In other words, he's saying, love God with every fiber of your being. He's quoting from the book of Moses when he's talking about loving the Lord your God. And then he quotes another passage from the books of Moses, uh, those first five books. It says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's already got the answer. And he quickly answers Jesus' question. He won't be tested and found inauthentic. And Jesus does say, expert, you're right. Now please, understand this. Jesus is not instituting a new type of legalism that we must bow to. A legalism that would say, well, how do I know if I've loved God and my neighbor enough? What are the things I must do to love God and love my neighbor so that I know that I can have eternal life? That's not what's happening here. See, that's the question that our society is spinning its wheels on. Our society is asking constantly, well, how do I love my neighbor? And when do I know that I've loved them well enough? <clears throat> that's legalistic thinking. It places success on our abilities and our devotion, and that is just not how eternal life works. That's not how God works. So please, set aside the burden of legalistically looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, of deciding, okay, now I have the burden of being a Good Samaritan to others. That's not the way you should be taking this story. You cannot measure your worth by how much you imitate the Good Samaritan. You cannot measure your worth by how much or how little you help others. 
or you can't measure your worth, as our world so often does these days, by identifying how others fail to love their neighbors and shame them until they change their ways and love them the way that the world says they should love them. Jesus is linking relationships to eternal life. He says, yes, you'll have eternal life if you have a healthy relationship with God and a healthy relationship with your neighbor. This leads to eternal life. So he's not talking about um, the actions. He's talking about the relationship. And we really see this with Jesus on the cross. He opened the way for each of us to have healthy relationships with God and with others on the cross and through his resurrection on the, from the grave. It is by that way, that road, that we can have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. And it's by that way alone, by what Jesus did for us on the cross. But as I said, we have a habit of legalistically answering if we've loved our neighbor or God enough. And that's exactly what the expert of the law is struggling with. He says it there in verse 29. He reveals it in verse 29. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's, he's asking, I, I want to know if I've loved my neighbor. If I wanna, I, I've done the right things. I wanna, want Jesus to affirm this in me that I've been doing the right stuff. And Jesus responds with a story, a story about a traveler, a traveler on the Jericho road, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this man is robbed, he's stripped naked, and he's left for dead. Three people encounter him, and only one helps. There is a ton of detail locked away in this story that we need to unpack. We can get the gist of the story about what it is to do right by a person, to help a person in need, but there's so much more in this story that many of us miss. Let's think about the Traveler for a minute. We never get his name. In fact, we don't get names for any of the characters in the story. The text doesn't tell us if this Traveler is Jewish or Roman or Greek or even a Samaritan himself. But it's strongly implied that he is Jewish. Just tuck that away. Keep that information later. The man robbed and attacked and left for dead on the side of the road. Very likely he's Jewish. And I think that will add some depth later in the story. But he's traveling on the Jericho Road. And that's a very important detail. It is one of the most dangerous roads in Israel. And it's still one of the most dangerous roads in the world today. Physically, the ancient Jericho Road was a very precarious walk. It was incredibly narrow in places and also was incredibly high up in places. And the road was deadly because of that physical reason, but it was also deadly because it was regularly patrolled by bandits, by robbers, and it still is, is patrolled by them today. It's in the mountains and it's easy for the thieves to hide in the rocks in the mountains. It's a, it's a very dangerous road even today. To walk the Jericho Road is a nerve-wracking experience. And uh, I've got a few photos, and I know some of you are listening to this podcast. You can't see the photos. You can type in Jericho Road and look for biblical pictures of Jericho Road. You kind of get to see them, and you'll see the loneliness of the path. You'll see how tiny it is. In many places, it's just one person wide. It's a long walk. It's about 17 miles through the mountain canyons from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it starts up high and drops 3,000 feet in elevation by the time it gets to Jericho. It's a, it's a tough journey. So maybe you could put yourself in the shoes of those travelers. It's easy to judge the priest and the Levite for not helping the wounded man. 
but they face emotions that a lot of us might face. They might be asking themselves questions like, well, I might get hurt or robbed too. It's a long journey and it's a hard journey. We might both perish if I take time to help this man. And you know, the sight of bones along the road was not all that uncommon. And they could say to themselves, oh, it's always like this. It's a bad place. I can't change this road. At any rate, the road is dangerous for many reasons, and I think it's easy for us to miss that detail. And so Jesus tells us of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on the Jericho Road, walking in this dangerous place. His fears come true, and he is robbed, and he's left for dead. We need to feel his injuries. We need to think about that. And he's feeling those injuries under the desert sun, and he's waiting until he breathes his last along the road. He's alone. How terrifying those moments, maybe minutes, maybe hours, who knows, maybe he laid there for days, I don't know. And then can you imagine for a moment him laying there and there's footsteps? Is it the robber's return to finish the job? Is this help? And it's at that moment that Jesus introduces into the story a Jewish priest, a man of devotion to God. Surely someone devoted to God will help, but Jesus tells us the priest refuses to help. He crosses to the other side of the road, which, if you can remember that some of the places on the Jericho Road are just one person wide, it's it's a steep drop off a cliff on the other side, that's no easy task if they're in a place like that. And then there comes another set of footsteps, a Levite. Another holy man devoted to God. And he too avoids the injured man. He too crosses over to the other side. What is going on here? Why are these leaders of Israel refusing to help? They should know the heart of God. And I would venture to guess that they thought they knew the heart of God and that they were doing what was good. We're not told why they refused to help. There could be all kinds of reasons. They could have been worried about getting robbed themselves. Perhaps they thought this injured man was a trap. If I stop and help him, the robbers nearby may come back. They could have been on an urgent journey. They were premier leaders in Israel. Perhaps they didn't have a moment to lose on their journey on the Jericho Road. Maybe they didn't have the resources or the know-how to help. And I think those are all reasons that we can come up with in our current day. We could say, I'm so busy, I don't know that I can stop and help. I don't know that I really can. Uh, have the, I don't know that I have the resources or the knowledge. I, what can I do to change the situation? Those are all reasons that the priest and the Levite could have used, and maybe they did use. Bible scholars believe that the priest and the Levite refused to stop for another reason altogether. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to a lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses. And this expert would have known of several verses in the Old Testament that might have given a clue as to why they didn't stop. See, a priest, a Levite, was not to touch a dead body. Actually, no Jewish person was supposed to. In Numbers 19.11, there's a caution about touching the dead. It actually reads, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They have to be isolated from others. Leviticus 22 verse 1 actually gets more specific, saying that priests and Levites should not touch the dead. It will make them unclean and unable to serve in the temple. 
it stinks to have to separate yourself from everybody. To be separated from your work when you think your work's important. To be quarantined. And so when we start using the language of quarantine, I think many of us have had that experience over the last year. It is no fun. And I think we can put ourselves into the shoes of the priest and the Levite and say, I've got to be careful what I do here. I could help, but if I get this wrong, I'm going to get quarantined. They'd have to risk becoming unclean. And they could be asking themselves, I'm not sure, certain if this man is dead or alive. I'd have to touch him to find out. And then I'll have to stop everything, stop life for seven days. What if I'm helping this man and he dies on the journey? Then I'll have expended resources and I'm still stuck having to be quarantined. These are awful reasons. But they're human reasons, aren't they? We do not like inconvenience. And the bigger the inconvenience, the more we think twice about things. You know, there's a worse way to look at this. The priest and the Levite would be seeking to live holy lives. And the rules began to be so important to them that they forgot about relationship. They might be saying, if I'm going to be holy, if I'm going to remain clean, I can't touch this man. I must stay away from that which is unclean. And they forgot that God really wants them to have a healthy relationship with their neighbor. And so they trade away something easier, something they trade away this relationship for something that is easier. It's easier to measure following the rules, whether you're doing what's right or wrong. It's much harder to say, do I have a healthy relationship with God and with my neighbor? And so maybe they thought they were being holy, righteous, by avoiding this man. That's sad. Let it never be said of the Christian that we are so busy being holy, separa separating ourselves from the profane, that we leave God's children on the side of the road. Now, Jesus introduces a third character, the Samaritan. This is the last character that any listener to the story would have expected. They would have thought, okay, well, there's a powerful uh, priest and there's a Levite coming along. These are the leaders of Israel, so... You know, the, the ironic answer would be to have a Jewish lay person come and help the injured man, not a priest. But that's not who Jesus brings into the story. He said, a Samaritan comes along. He comes in his own travels and he helps. It's easy for us to miss the significance of Samaritan heritage. Samaritans were originally part of Israel. They were Israelites, originally. But there is a point in their history when Israel split in half. Ten tribes resided in the north, and they formed their own kingdom, and two tribes remained in the south, and they kept those two tribes in the south, kept the capital of Jerusalem, they kept worshiping in the temple, and the ten tribes in the north established their own capital city called Samaria, which is where we get the name Samaritan from, and they worshiped in their own places of worship. So there was civil war, there was division that caused hatred between them. The Jewish people in the south thought that their kin in the north were traitors. They also thought of them as half-breeds because they intermarried with other nations and cultures. They saw them as unfaithful as they refused to worship, continue to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and they founded their own places of worship. And they saw them as a lesser people who no longer were the chosen children of God. They especially saw this when the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. They were scattered and their identity was lost. 
small populations remained and they were Samaritans. And this disapproval and hatred lasted for centuries. Now in Jesus' day, the territory of Israel contained Samaritans within its borders. It contained Samaria within its borders. In the southern part of Israel, you would have Jerusalem and Israelite territory where the Jewish people lived. But if you want to go to Galilee, where Jesus was most of his ministry, you'd have to go north. And if you wanted to get there directly, you'd have to walk through Samaria. But the average Jewish, Jewish person chose instead to add days and miles to the journey, and they would walk around Samaria to avoid even setting their feet on that awful people's land. It was a deep hatred and animosity that they held towards Samaritans. And so Jesus shocks everyone listening to the story by making the hero, by making the neighbor a Samaritan. Now please remember, this all started with the expert of the law asking a question about how do you get eternal life? And Jesus said, tells us that the person in the story that's closest to the mark, closest to getting eternal life, is this traitorous, unfaithful, unholy Samaritan. And if you're not believing me about how there's so much animosity between Samaritans and the Jewish people, if you did not catch it, at the end of the story, when Jesus asks this expert in the law, who was the neighbor, which one of these three men was a neighbor, he answered, the one who showed mercy. The teacher of the law cannot even bring himself to say, the Samaritan, the Samaritan who showed mercy. That is how deep the hatred goes. Please, do not let division, hatred, or frustration keep you from being a neighbor. Now, I want to take a few moments and dig a little deeper into that Samaritan and look at what he did. Because he is a neighbor. He is the one that does what is right and helps the man who's on the verge of death. And he has all these qualities that he, ha that, that he shows. Our first one is compassion, mercy, or it's compassion, pity that he shows for this wounded man. As Jesus tells us the story, and he tells us of the Samaritan's encounter with the wounded man, we're told that he has pity upon him. He has compassion for him. He sees the gravity of the situation. He realized that this is not going to get any better unless he is the one who steps in and helps. And I think that moment right there is important for us to know. So many times when it comes to helping others, we wonder, where are the boundaries? How much do I do? And I think this is a key to knowing when we are to help and when we are to put up a boundary wall and say, I, I can't do this. I would hope all of us would err on helping others as many and as much as possible. But reality tells, that there, tells us that there's more need than you and I can fix. We are limited in our ability. And sometimes people ask us for help, but what they desire is either selfish or what they want is something that really won't help their need. And I think it's important to see that this Samaritan realizes that someone was going to have to help. If someone didn't step in, this man would die. The priest and the Levite might have noticed this, but they refused to act. The Samaritan realized that it was his turn, his responsibility to help, or the end of this man was going to happen on this road. So for those of you today who have someone clamoring for more help than you think you can give, pray, seek God, ask him if it's you that should be helping, if it's you who should be the necessary next step in their recovery, or if there's someone else who should step in. 
So I think sometimes we think it has to be us when really it should be someone else. I'm not telling you don't help. I'm just telling you part of compassion is realizing that it's me or it's, it's not going to happen. But I think sometimes we step in a little bit too soon. So be careful. Compassion sees the need and realizes that action must be taken now. And that's what this Samaritan shows. But then we're also told by at the end of the story that he's the one who shows mercy. The teacher of the law identifies that Samaritan as the one who has mercy. And that mercy we can think of as undeserved relief. And we know mercy from God. God has given us grace, forgiveness that's not deserved. And we should show mercy to others. And that's a challenge because often we only want to give people what they've earned and what they deserve. And mercy is undeserved relief. The Samaritan also has kindness. He shows a tremendous amount of kindness. Kindness is so important. Alexander McLaren says this about kindness. Kindness makes a person attractive. If you would win the world, melt it. Do not hammer it. We can clearly see the priest and Levite as ugly in this passage. And the Samaritan is beautiful because of his kind actions. I think kindness is a dying art in a society. We have no shortage of people telling others how to be kind. But we seem to have a shortage of people who are actually kind. You know, one of the enemies of kindness is bitterness. I was talking to my wife Betsy about this parable, Good Samaritan, and I was talking about kindness, and she mentioned that we need to be aware and be careful of wanting to taste the fruit of bitterness. It is too easy for us to take pleasure in getting uh, to take pleasure in someone who is getting their just desserts. Let me say that again. It is too easy for us to take pleasure in someone getting their just desserts. Ah, oh, they, they deserve that. Sometimes the tasting of the fruit of bitterness means that we decide, you know, I, I'm justified in holding on to this resentment. I have a right to feel this way. The fruit of bitterness is the enemy, the killer of kindness. Are you hanging on to bitterness? Or are you trying to foster kindness in the relationships around you? When we walk the road of bitterness, we lose kindness that is so desperately needed in our world. And the Samaritan shows tremendous kindness in this passage. He bandages and treats the wounds of the, of the man on the side of the road as best as he can. He takes the wounded man to a place to rest and to heal. And that's something else I want to talk about, because the, the, the Samaritan, our story, yeah, he has compassion, yeah, he has mercy, he has kindness, but everything about what he does is personal. It's important to see that the Samaritan was personally involved in being a neighbor. He bound the wounds, he transported the man, he could have traveled to the inn and paid someone else to go and get the man. He did it personally. A personal touch is so much more meaningful. It's a silly little story about personalness. Mammy Adams always went to the branch office, uh, the branch post office in her town, because the postal employees were friendly. She went there to buy stamps just before Christmas one year, and the lines were very long. And someone pointed out that there was no need to wait in the long line because there was a stamp machine in the lobby. You could save yourself so much time, and you won't have to hurt your feet standing in the line. And, and Mammy just said, I know. But the machine won't ask me how my arthritis is. 
personal touch is so important in this day and age. We live in a time now where we can be in people's lives without being personal. It's getting easier and easier. We can do it through social media. We can do it through technology. We can get into people's lives and not be personal. It's getting easier. But we as people thrive when we can operate on a personal level. Get involved. Get to know people. Hear their stories. The last attribute of the Samaritan's neighborly services that I want us to see is the most important one. And that is, he is sacrificial. This Samaritan is sacrificial in how he helps this stranger. He uses his personal resources to bind the wounds. He places the man on his own donkey, probably making the rest of the journey on, on foot. By you know, He's giving up his transportation, then he's got to walk on foot. And when he gets to the inn, the Samaritan takes out two silver denarii. He stays one night there to care for the man, and then he takes out two silver denarii. So not only does he give up time and resources, he then puts out finances here. A denarii is a day's wage for labor. So he gives out two days' wages for labor. And that might not seem like a lot of money to you, and it is a lot of money. But something archaeologists have found, they've estimated the cost of room and board um, for a day at the inn during the time of Jesus. And the cost of room and board for one day would be about one-twelfth or one-thirty-second of a denarii. So that is to say, the Samaritan paid for somewhere between 24 and 64 days of room and board for this wounded man at the inn. It's not like he's just saying, yeah, i got to pay for two days so you can kind of get up back on your feet. He pays for like a month or two months worth of staying and being cared for. And then he leaves instructions of the instructions of the innkeeper and says, if any more costs come up, I'll take care of those as well. This tra- this sacrifice is tremendous. And the sacrifice goes far deeper. Cuz he's willing to put any sort of pride aside. Remember, the Samaritan is a despised man among the Israelites. I think that's important to remember. There's a painting I want you to see. And again, I know if you're listening to this podcast, you you can't see it. I'll try to include the painting in the icon, the image icon of the podcast. But you can easily find it by searching the internet for Van Gogh's painting of the Good Samaritan. It's a beautiful painting of the Samaritan lifting up the wounded man onto the donkey, getting ready to take him to the inn. I really enjoy the work of Van Gogh. For a long time, I, I just didn't quite understand it. I thought, oh, it's pretty, but I don't understand it. And that's some one of his paintings in person. And the paint is laid so thickly on that canvas that it's like a, a three-dimensional artwork. And I like this particular depiction of the Good Samaritan. The story is told very fully in this picture. There's some artistic license. And I want to lean on that artistic license a little bit, because I think we can learn a little bit from it. As I said, the Samaritan is lifting the wounded man onto his donkey. And uh, it's an awkward scene. The injury 
that the man is suffering is is revealed because there's this awkward position of the man getting lifted onto the donkey. It's not natural. There's a helplessness in him. There, there's an uncomfortableness there. The, the wounded man is bare-chested and he's leaning against a Samaritan. Again, it's awkward and uncomfortable. And, and his arms are dra- draped awkwardly around the Samaritan. All of these are little hints to the extra sacrifice of this moment. When you picture this awkward lifting and pushing and, and leaning and, and f- trying to force this man up onto the donkey, you, you just get this moment where you go, how many of us would say, okay, stop. This is too hard. I can't do this. But the Samaritan does do this. I've always wondered at this painting, I look at the Samaritan's face. Or not the Samaritan's face, the wounded man's face. I've always looked at it and it's always looked aloof to me. Maybe even a little disgusted. Maybe Van Gogh was trying to paint it unconscious, an unconscious face. But to me, it looks a little bit aloof, a little bit um, bothered by the situation. And I might be reading too much into it, but I think it's safe to say that the Samaritan is helping a man who under normal circumstances would hate him. So remember, this wounded man is an Israelite. He's Jewish. He would be repulsed by his helper. And that's a sacrifice to help the person who hates you. And you know, that's biblical. That's what Jesus did. When he died on the cross, there were many that hated him. But he was willing to be a sacrifice for them and for you and for me. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus has that depth of love for you. That while we are still sinners, he would die for us. Today, you need to hear that God loves you so much that he died for you. That you can have the deepest healing that anyone can experience by receiving him as your Lord and Savior. Will you receive the forgiveness of Jesus for your sins? Will you become a follower of Jesus? And then, after you follow Jesus, are you willing to be a neighbor to those who hate you? who do not understand why you would care for them. Will you do what is right for them, even when they do not understand it and hate you for it? I want to go back to that painting by Van Gogh real quickly. Did you catch some of the other details? Hopefully you looked it up. You have the roadway, and there's a broken strong box, empty of its good. That's showing the man was robbed. But then just behind that strong box is a person. It's the Levite walking away. And then a little further on is the priest walking away. These are people who could have helped but refused. And I want to stretch the story again with this painting. Because Van Gogh painted the Samaritan traveling the opposite direction of the priest and the Levite. His donkey is facing towards us and they're facing away. The implication is that the Samaritan passed the priest on his journey and he passed the Levite on his journey and he knows now that they refuse to stop and help. It's heartbreaking when the world sees the people of God failing to be a neighbor. It's a bad representation of Jesus. And so when they see that, they don't understand what it means to be holy, what it means to be a follower of God. But oh, how wonderful the picture and the portrait of the Samaritan, he shows us what actual holiness really is. 
C.S. Lewis writes these words, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. And that's what we find in the Good Samaritan. I could go on and on with this story. Our society is obsessed with helping. We've already mentioned that. But we always frame helping as it's to be helping the less fortunate, the downtrodden, the poor, those discriminated against. That's not what happens in the story of the Good Samaritan as Jesus tells it. The wounded man is what we would call unfortunate. He's the unfortunate one. He's the one that needs help because he's robbed and he's near death. I get that. But as far as we know, he and the Samaritan may be financially equals. They both seem to be wealthy men on this journey. Uh, the implication is that they're both wealthy. They're both traveling the Jericho Road. It just so happens that one of them gets robbed. Reality is, in this story, the man with the lesser social status is the Samaritan. He's the hated one. He's the foreigner in Israel. He's the one who's seen as unholy and probably untouchable. He's seen as the one who has strayed from God. For all intents and purposes, he is helping his superior, or at least the one who believes he's superior. We need to realize everyone is the wounded man on the side of the road. Our society loves to help those who we think are less than us, the poor, the downtrodden. But the reality is everyone is wounded. Everyone is on the side of the road. And in some way, shape, or form, they need help. So what are we to do? First, be careful where you draw the line in deciding who is in need of help and who is not. That line that you draw is the same place where you will draw the line for who your neighbor is. Secondly, I'd say, just stop asking who your neighbor is and resolve that you will be a neighbor wherever you are. Help and healing start with you. This whole story began with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Seek to have a healthy relationship with God and seek to have a healthy relationship with your neighbor. This is a story about life, because it talks about eternal life. It talks about healthy relationships, and it talks about life-giving sacrifice. Remember that we are a people called to life. Know today that we are called to possess eternal life, which we just receive it. And we're called to speak life into others. We are to rise above division, above hatred, above selfishness, above self-righteousness, and speak life into those who we are a neighbor to. Let us pray. Lord, help each of us to be good Samaritans, good neighbors to those around us. Help us to realize that life and healing starts with us. Help us to know, help us to show needed kindness in a frustrated world. And help us to love sacrificially, just as Jesus showed his love to us by being the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.